buenos dias. Que paso, amigos. Amigas, players, playerettes, dudettes, everybody in between. Welcome back to another scintillating, titillating, uh, and exhilarating episode of Game of Crimes. Those are wow. big words, Murph. Did you catch all of those? No. I hope there's not a test at the end. There is not a test, except except your P-test. You're going to have to study for that one for your drug <laughs> test. So, hey, guys, welcome back. Morgan right here, literally with my partner in crime. Hola, y'all. It's Murph. Hola, y'all. That's the Southern way. That's right. That's a Southern Spanish accent. Spanglish. Spanglish. Hey, guys, welcome back. This is going to be a good one. We've got something very interesting this time, but before we get into it, just a tad bit of housekeeping. Head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars, the reviews, cinco stars. Is that how you say stars? Como se dice stars? Estrellas. 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 Cinco estrellas. All right. Cinco estrellas. Hit five stars. We guys would really appreciate it. It's really helping us. Um, we're getting a lot of good comments from everybody, but just, hey, give us your feedback. We'd love to hear it. Also, head on over to website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We got everything over there, including our books. We've got books galore. I mean, we've got as many books as Amazon does, almost. Darn right. And ours are better. Yeah, because they come from the people who were involved. So some really good stuff there. Also follow us on that thing they call social media. It's a fad, I guess. It hasn't gone away yet. At Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But folks, you got to be on Patreon. We actually mm -hmm. have Murph. We got actually, I've gotten received a lot of good comments of what we did on our uh, case of the month and what we did when we analyzed the uh, Murdoch verdict. We got into the technical details. We talked about the kidnappings down in Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, Super Steve King uh, wrote us back. He really liked us diving into it. And look, we got mm -hmm. feedback too on our 911 episode about the uh, young man from Embry-Riddle who was killed and it's supposed to be a suicide and right. um, or an accident. It just shameful. The, 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 the procedures there done, but we got Michelle Kidtackberry got a lot of good comments from her on that. So, and you know, from a lot of folks, so we really appreciate you guys, but that's what we're doing on Patreon. We're actually, we're diving into the stuff. We're giving you stuff. We're looking at it the ways other people aren't, whether it's nine one one, you know, what's your emergency? Um, you can't make this shit up. And boy, if I got one for you this month, Murph, we're going across the pond. Everything is exclusively in the UK. All right. Our, the, our we're going to see what the British do. That's that's my uh, that's my I, family over there. I wonder if Julie Mackey was involved in some of those. By the way, I just saw a note from um, her uh, co-writer on the book. They got nominated for an award over in the UK. I think for its first uh, first you know book by an author you know in the mm -hmm. crime category. So good luck to those guys. Um, Excellent. That'll be great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but just join us on Patreon, folks. Game of Crimes, you can find us at patreon.com slash game of crimes. That's patreon.com slash game of crimes. Here's how to order, as Billy Mays would say. So <laughs> just head on over there and uh, we got a lot of good stuff coming out. But guys, remember, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but we never, never take ourselves serious. We're going to have some fun. And one of the ways we have fun is we also have a Game of Crimes fan group run by our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato. Go over there, ask for admission, um, answer a couple questions. Just get in the ballpark. If you're breathing, you can probably get in. If she deems you worthy, you shall be, re you shall be admitted to the inner sanctum where hilarity will ensue. I guarantee it. And I think as long as you're breathing, you'll probably get, <laughs> just put an answer down. We have standards, but they're not very high. So. That's right. That's right. If she let me in, she'll let anybody in. That's right. Well, speaking of letting anybody in, you ought to see some of the people they let into North Dakota this week who we're going to pick on, but there's only one way I can ask you about that, Murph. What? Are you ready? Are you okay. ready? Do you know what time it is? Guess what time it is? It's time for... 
Small town police blotter. We are going to North Dakota. We are visiting Fargo in the area out there in Fargo, eh? Right, Michelle Linhart, eh? Fargo, poof your hair. Go Bears, you know? Had a, one of my classmates in the DEA Academy was from Fargo. Jeff's, well, I'll just say Jeff S. I won't mention his last name. Okay. How do you spell his last name? I can't. It's it's hard. <laughs> for Fargo. I mean, I don't know how you it's spell it. Jeff so. Fargo. Hey, well, Murph. Yes. This, these are some fun ones. Police responded to a crash scene. They arrested Jenna Marie Smart, 26, after a warrant check revealed that she failed to appear in court on a pending narcotics and drug paraphernalia case. Okay. Yeah. It happens, right? Yep. After transporting Smart to the Cass County Jail, Officer Michael Benton spotted blood on the back seat of his patrol car. Now, when he asked about this, she said, well, she was on her period. Oh. Yeah, but as Smart was walked to the booking area, blood continued to drip from her crotch area, quote, onto her legs and the floor. That's a direct quote out of the police report. Mm. She subsequently admitted she had a pipe and a body cavity. They recovered a broken, clear, guess what? Oh, crack pipe. Meth pipe. Oh, meth meth pipe. Pipe. oh, oh. And a cap syringe from Smart's vaginal area. Oh. The pipe was booked into evidence. Why would you do that? Take oh. a picture and the needle discarded. Since she continued to bleed, though, she was brought to a local hospital where medical staff removed some additional broken glass oh my from her internals. After being medically cleared, she was returned to jail where she was booked in custody for possession of drug paraphernalia, possession of a controlled substance, and possession of why the hell would you do something like that? And after she cleared court, she went in and changed her last name from smart to dumbass. Dumbass. Smartass to dumbass. That's right. (laughs) And what's rule number one on the podcast, Murph? Don't do meth. And if you do meth, don't hide the the pipe (laughs) in your nether regions. Okay. Murph, you ever been to church? uh, A lot. Yeah, you're not Catholic, right? No. If you were Catholic, though, you probably would have given it up after this next incident. I went to Catholic church one time, and I, it was up, down, kneel, pray, stand, clap, sit down, shut up. I, it's, yes. I didn't know what I was supposed to do there. Well, I guarantee you, neither did this guy. 9 a.m. Mass Tuesday at the Spirit of Life Turf was interrupted when Zachary Burdick appeared in the entry of the Roman Catholic Church in Mandan, a city about five miles from Bismarck. You know it's got to be small. Mm-hmm. A female church employee called after Burdick disrobed entered the front, the font, they called it, where he was masturbating facing the altar. He then began walking down the aisle toward the altar while still masturbating. No, no, no. Burdick began to splash around in the holy water fountain. He Mm. entered the sanctuary with his, quote, machinery hanging out and was pumping himself. Mm. Father Todd Kreitlinger, who was conducting mass when Burdick arrived, said the intruder dipped his rear end into the holy water fountain and splashed around a bit before entering the sanctuary while masturbating. The priest added that the font would have to be cleaned and sanitized, a process that would cost the church 500 bucks. Now get this, Murph. Mm. What's rule number one on our podcast? Don't do meth. When confronted by police, Burdick reportedly said he was tweaking on meth and admitted to using hashish oil. What a moron. He, yeah, he, when they, when they, yeah, well, they told him you could not masturbate in public. Burdick replied, especially in church. He just declared he was trying to bust a nut inside the church. Oh, so geez. it's normally a misdemeanor, Murph, but because it was a religious institution within 50 feet of where private religious instruction is given to age children age 3 to 9, mm-hmm. he was charged with felony. Good. By Good. the way, on his Facebook page, he is described as a rapper, producer, and songwriter. An idiot. Well, oh. All right, let's end this up, Murph. All right. Eight strange laws. Okay. From the state of North Dakota. <laughs> in North Dakota, 
It is illegal to lie down and fall asleep with your shoes on. Really? Why? Because, I mean, well, think about that. What could be the what? What led to that? Uh, well, what led to this one in Fargo? You may be jailed if you're wearing a hat while dancing, or if you're wearing a hat at a function where dancing is going on. Oh, check that hat. Let me tell you, this next one I would go to war over. Beer and pretzels can't be served together in any North Dakota bar or restaurant. <laughs> that's just that's like peanut butter and jelly. It's legal to shoot an Indian on horseback in North Dakota, provided you are in a covered wagon. I think that law, number one, is a little outdated. And it number two, <laughs> why is that even nearly on the books? <laughs> number five, in Devil's Lake, this you got to listen to this one. you got to reason this one out. In Devil's Lake, New Year's fireworks are prohibited from being set off after 11 p.m. At Devil's Lake. Is this because midnight's the witching hour? Well, midnight is New Year's, so you can't shoot your fireworks off at New Year's. Oh, jeez. No I, I thought North Dakota was a fun place. Well, apparently it is, unless you have an elk. It's illegal to keep an elk in a sandbox in your backyard. Darn right. I knew that. Never put an elk in a sandbox. That's right. By the way, if you're in Waverly, you can't take your horse into your bathtub with you. Horses are forbidden from sleeping in bathtubs. <laughs> And this one, this one makes sense. It sounds strange, but this one makes sense. Operators of, un, of underground coal mines in North Dakota must provide an adequate supply of toilet paper for each toilet. Well, yeah. I mean, there's no leaves in there, let me tell you. <laughs> if you got to go, there is no, get me in the elevator, bring me 1,500 feet up. Bring a coal car back in here. I got to go. We are going to have a Kevin moment if that happens. We're going to crap our pants. <laughs> Sorry, dude, you are the gift that keeps on giving. That's right. We love you, brother. But it's oh. funny. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, now, now that we're done with the potty humor, let's get to the okay. real stuff. All right. All right. Well, Steve, we both know this gentleman. Mm -hmm. He actually came out of DEA, Chief of Public Affairs. Yep. And then got himself elected Sheriff of Loudoun County, which was he, nobody had a clue who this guy was originally. He got elected. And I think all his work he did in public affairs prepared him for what he went through this last couple years. He was in the middle, and his department was in some of the biggest shitstorms yep. in the United States. And I, and I mean that literally, folks. I mean, from the CRT debate, where things got really hectic at the school boards, to the investigation of the sexual assaults that happened at the high school mm -hmm. where my daughter went and my mm -hmm. son went. My daughter used that same bathroom. You and I talked about this on Patreon. Yep. And so we've got him, uh, you know, from going from DEA to Loudoun County Sheriff and controversy. And that's Loudoun County, Virginia, for those of y'all that don't know where Loudoun County is. You probably, we... everybody's heard of it by now. I had an <laughs> Uber driver. I'm in San Antonio, Texas. Where are you from? Northern Virginia. Where Loudoun County. Oh, yeah, you guys. And then yeah. she told me the next five minutes about what's going on up there. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Mike is, uh, man, he found a job that just he stepped into. He brought uh, integrity and honor to the position. The programs he's implemented there in uh, Loudoun County have been mirrored in other parts of the country. And as you'll hear in the podcast, he was recently elected as Sheriff of the Year by the National Sheriff's Association. I mean, it's the guy, in fact, I just read the other day where he was selected as the executive director of the HIDA, the High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area um, Executive Board for that the D.C. metro area. Yep. I mean, the guy's got it going on. He's got his stuff good together. Well, and I'll tell you, I'm selfish because I want to live in a safe community and a 40% reduction in crime in spite of everything that went on during the tough times where it was defund the police or there's a lot of issues with people working with the police and law enforcement. Loudoun County has been the beneficiary of a decent 
good reduction in crime. And I will tell you this, Murph, I was joking with him, but as a detective in a much smaller area, I worked more homicides in a year than this county did. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I'd like to live in Lathan County. You felt safe there. You bastard. You left anyway, though. Yeah, I did. And, but you know what? And wait till you hear for our listeners, wait till you hear him talk about what the county commissioners are trying to do. It just, it's outrageous. Outrageous. But the only way they're going to hear outrageous it is, Murph. If you're outraged, I got to ask you one question. Are you ready to play the most outrageous, most dangerous, biggest, baddest game of all, the game of crimes? Get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. You're going to love what you're about to hear and the way it's being handled. Folks, this is a special treat for me because this is my turf. It's like say, this is my hometown now. We get to bring in somebody who's responsible for keeping my ass safe in Loud County. And I, if there was a vote on it, he might not. I might get voted off the island, but I, you know, and it's a friend of Murph too. So Murph, I'll let you do the quick, Andrew. But I want to let everybody know that we have on with us today former DEA special agent Mike Chapman, who is now sheriff of Loudoun County, Virginia. My hometown, right, Murph? You, you left us, though. You, the traitorous bastard, though, Mike, moved on us. He moved to Florida. He he left us hanging. Yeah, but Mike knows who was there when it came fun time, fundraising time for his re-election. <laughs> <laughs> right, Mike? Hey, that really, right. It, is, it is an honor to have you on here. This is uh, Mike and I were, were uh, baby agents together down in Miami, although we didn't know each other very well back in the 80s. Uh, kind of went our separate ways to different parts of the world, and lo and behold, ended up together in Loudoun County, Virginia, as residents. So proud of of what you've done there, Mike. So welcome to Game of Crimes, brother. Well, it's a, it's really an honor to be interviewed by uh, by you and Morgan today. We got a cybersecurity expert in Morgan, and we have a DA legend. So I'm, I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> I often tell people, I said, you know, uh, when we were baby agents down there in Miami, uh, you went off to uh, to Columbia, and I went off to Pakistan, and yeah. you get a TV show, and I don't. So uh, how that work out? <laughs> hey, yeah, hey, I got to say this right up front, man. I didn't get elected sheriff of the year for 2023. <laughs> oh, that's Congratulations, man. Well, thanks, thanks. We're we're I tell you what, we got a we got a terrific team here, man. I could not be happier with the outstanding team we have. And it's a, as you know, any of these things and and certainly when it comes to law enforcement, everything that we do is a team effort. If we didn't work as a team, we wouldn't get anything done. Absolutely. Well, Mike and I have made history together too. And this, here's a quick update Wait for a minute. you. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's don't get TMI here. That's well, first of all, we'll have to talk about Pakistan. I did some I did some time in Pakistan too. I was over in Islamabad. Uh, with the State Department. So, but uh, when I originally created this little thing called Connected to the Case, Mike was our pilot agency. He worked with us. His folks were so good to work with us. We worked on a fugitive. I remember him to this day, Mike, because I keep getting emails from him because he finds himself out on the internet. Cleon Williams, a former Leesburg police officer, went bad, is arrested. And they said, I said, so they handed me a flyer. They said, let's find this guy. We found him in 36 hours, three states away. They'd been looking for him for like six months, but you guys are overwhelmed with cases, but great work on your guys' part because you guys went up to Philly, arrested him, and brought him back. They did the news thing, you know, so, but that now, guess what, Mike, has turned into, uh, we got a grant from the U.S. Department of Justice, the cop's office. Uh-huh. We're now building this out. We're turning this this original idea into what we call the National Center for Open and Unsolved Cases, so... We're actually releasing the prototype April 15th. That's when it'll be done, and we're starting to kick it off. Well, that's fantastic. And I know, uh, you know, connected to the case was a cyber version of America's Most Wanted. And uh, the the ability that uh, that you had to, to uh, 
coordinate and organize something like that to exchange that kind of information and, and access all that data that was already out there in uh, open source and, and other stupid things that people put up about themselves is always very helpful. <laughs> and, that, and that dude keeps emailing me back. He says, look, it's the archive somewhere. Some of the stuff's not. He says, you got to take me off. He tried to represent himself as a PhD and everything. I'm going, you, you're killing me, pal. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh. Yeah. yeah well, let's, thank goodness they're not the smartest people in the world. And we're talking about criminals. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, well, let's let's talk as we always do with everybody. Think of ours, Cosa Nostra. Think of ours. How did you get started in this profession we called law enforcement? And don't tell me, because y'all ended up in Miami. Don't tell me it had anything to do with Miami Vice, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know actually uh, when I when I was a uh, a kid growing up, my dad was a, a Washington D.C. police detective, so I would hear the stories that he would tell me, uh, and I thought that's kind of an interesting uh, job. It might be something I would consider down the road. So when I was in uh, in high school, my my senior year of high school, just at the end of that, I had uh, achieved my black belt in Taekwondo. And Where'd was, you go to high school at? I went to Wheaton High School, which is in Montgomery County, Maryland. Okay. Uh, so, so I was there. I went ahead and I and I I, I got my black belt back then, and um, and I it was right when full contact karate was coming into into play, uh, the Professional Karate Association and all that. So I started I started doing a lot of training, and I did uh, and I taught full time. I had a, a studio of my own. It was a franchise operation that uh, that uh, Junior Institute had. If you if you ever remember. Way back when in the Washington D.C. Beltway area here, you had uh, he really kind of had the monopoly on on the Taekwondo schools, and he had about eight around the Beltway. I the one that I had was out in Bowie, Maryland, and uh, he was the, uh, the it had the famous commercial. Nobody bothered me. Nobody bothered me either. He had his little kids up there on the uh, on the TV. But anyway, so uh, I I was doing some uh, some professional uh, full contact karate fighting, uh, and I was teaching. And, uh, and I was also, uh, you know, pretty serious, uh, with my, with my girlfriend back then, uh, who we met during high school and she's, she's my wife, uh, remains my wife today after 45 <laughs> years, believe it or not, we just celebrated our anniversary last, uh, last week, uh, Congratulations, right. anniversary. So, um, anyway, uh, so we, we've been together like forever. And, uh, as so I figure, well, Karate was good. It wasn't a bad thing to do, but it really wasn't the kind of a career I was looking at. And I started thinking more and more about law enforcement and had the opportunity to uh, to start applying uh, for jobs, got my associate's degree in criminal justice. And back then, when you were applying to be a, a law enforcement officer, an associate's degree was uh, was pretty good. And there were very mm -hmm. few people had had any degrees at all. Now, now you have a lot of folks that have all kinds of uh, degrees, uh, bachelor's, master's, we even have some uh, here that are working on their PhD. So, I mean, it's not back then it was it was not all that common. So I, I was able to get hired by the Howard County Police Department in Maryland. Uh, I was the youngest one to go into the class. I had just turned 21 when I was hired there. So uh, it was a really, really good start to me. I uh, ended up doing uh, seven years there, three in patrol, three as a SWAT guy. We had a special unit that was just a, a dedicated kind of like special operations section SWAT unit. And then a year as a detective. And while I was on the SWAT unit, we used to help DEA do all the raids because they were, as as you know, Steve, DEA, it's not like they got a lot of manpower. So if you can't mm -hmm. coordinate and work with your local counterparts there, you really can't get anything done. Right. So uh, the DEA, uh, it was a guy named Dick Duran who was out of Baltimore, was our, was our liaison there, was the, the, the agent that covered our area there in Howard County. So, so we would uh, work with him. And when it came time to do a drug raid, he would be the one that 
would get us and the SWAT team, we get called out. So I got to know some of those guys over there, DEA, and thought, wow, that's pretty, uh, pretty interesting job here. You know, it might be something I consider a little bit down the road. So I went back, got my undergraduate degree, and then started applying. And, and fortunately, uh, DEA picked me up. So I was uh, happy to go on. I got hired in 1985. Um, so, yeah, we just uh, were kind of coming in. Uh, the, the cocaine wave had started down there in South Florida, probably mm-hmm. the early 80s, 82, 83. So coming in 85 and, and actually graduating the academy going in 86 was was really a pretty interesting start to that career. I didn't have any problem going to Miami. Uh, I was kind of sick of the cold weather up here in Maryland. <laughs> and I figured, okay, yeah, this, will be a, this will be pretty cool. be a fresh start. And uh, yeah, Miami Vice is a very popular TV show there. <laughs> there hey, you go. Interesting. It, what was interesting <laughs> to me, Morgan, about Miami Vice was I would, I'd look at these shows and these guys would be – I mean, killing each other over like two kilograms of cocaine. And we go out sometimes on a, on a, on a single day street rip or whatever, get 40, 50 kilos of cocaine. It was amazing how much cocaine was on there. <laughs> I'm like, they're underplaying it. Miami Vice is actually underplaying what was going on down there. In Miami. Well, oh, you know, it's TV budget. They could only afford two kilos per episode. <laughs> hey, uh, everybody hold on. And Mike, hold on. We've got something for you guys. This is going to be really new. This is going to be fun, guys. We are thrilled to share this new, and it's a new and compelling angle on one of the most famous unsolved serial murder cases of all time, the case of the Zodiac Killer. Now, the Zodiac operated in 1968, 69 in California, at least six deaths that we know of, still debating to this day until now, right? Because this newly released audiobook, How to Find Zodiac, is written by Jarrett Kobeck and performed by award-winning narrator Scott Brick. They encourage you to forget everything you think you know about this infamous killer, and they reinvestigate, Murph, what's possible with the case, and they pose a new suggestion of who they think the Zodiac is. And, you know, Morgan, I mean, this is a mystery that's been at the forefront of American culture for, well, since the late 1960s. And it's it's a topic that's going to be in, uh, a big discussion point within the true crime community, and that's why we're here on Game of Crimes to start with. So if you are a fan of true crimes, which is why you're here with us, you're going to be instantly hooked to learn who the real Zodiac killer most likely is. You know, and we all we all are about, you know, we follow the facts. You're talking to a couple of trained criminal investigators. We look at it. It's convincing. It's well investigated for who the real Zodiac is. Now, Alan Moore, he's the author of From Hell. He praises this news take on the Zodiac investigation as a scruffy masterpiece of criminology. I like that scruffy. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that either Kobeck's painstaking deductions are correct or we must urgently revise the laws of probability. So, if you guys are interested in diving into this case further, you can listen to the newly released audiobook, How to Find Zodiac, by Jared Kobeck and performed by award-winning narrator Scott Brick, now on Audible, brought to you by Podium Audio. So visit our episode page. It's also going to be in the show notes and learn more about one of the most intriguing cases that has yet to be solved until today. So, hey, let's get back to talking to Mike. But you know what's interesting? When you were in Howard County, over in Howard... I think at the same time, guess who was a Baltimore police officer? I think about that same time. Was that you or what? No, Michelle Linhart. Oh, that's right. That's right. She was. Yeah. So yeah. well, she would have been. Uh, that's right. She would have been about the same time. That's correct. Uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and and this is you know, look, we found Michelle 
kind of kind of gamed the system. You had to be five foot four to be a boss or a Baltimore police officer. <laughs> she said she went in and she poofed in her North Dakota accent, poofed my hair. She poofed her hair to get that extra half inch to be five four. So there you go. Except for poofing her hair, Michelle Linhart may not have been administrator of DEA all those years later. Uh, you never know. <laughs> you never know. Hey. Of DEA than I did, but. Uh. But yeah, question when, that's right. She was. Uh, um, that's yeah. right. Uh-huh. When you went through the academy, Mike, did uh, is that back when you used to put in your wish list where you wanted to go, and and what was your wish list? Actually, my wish list was uh, I, I, had, I think I had Miami at the top, and you know, Steve, half of our class, uh, probably like yours, uh, was uh, uh, went down to Miami. We we had we were the second class to go through Quantico, so we were class forty, mm-hmm. and class thirty nine had just moved to uh, to start. Uh, you know, they moved up from Glencoe, Georgia, where the training was done. Then they moved up to Quantico. And, and I think there was this competition between like uh, FBI and DEA, to, you know, with regards to the to the mindset of how they ran these classes. Yeah. So it, it was it was interesting to me because uh, Bob Parks, who uh, was ended up being my boss in Karachi, Pakistan, was my class coordinator when I was going through the academy. And in fact, he had just gotten back from from Thailand himself. So we, so I remember going through. Uh, class 39 had, um, I think they started out with 46 and they ended up graduating 18. I mean, they, it was a whole, that sounds like, that sounds like when we had Kevin Holland on, on, he went through, he was, he was a guy, he was a guy that pulled Saddam Hussein out of the hole. They were talking about seal team six and dev grew and going through Yeah, they started off. I don't know with what Murph, but they ended up with 10% of their class, you know, holy cow. You sound like seal training. What got most people, why did most people punch out? Well, I can tell you because it was uh, it was hard. I mean, they were were very it was it was very uh, military, paramilitary, but uh, pretty much military. And we would be constantly uh, running from, like they never gave us enough time to uh, when we would shoot in the morning to clean our weapons and to get to the first class. So we'd be running really in our fatigues, literally sprinting to get to class on time. Everybody's, you know, hey, can I use your you, you know your brush? Can I use your you know? Everybody's mm-hmm. trying to you know get all their gun cleaning equipment, uh, ha- handing it around like it's a hot potato. So we're, you, you know, you'd have to do all this kind of stuff, and we'd be sprinting to our classes, and and this is no, it's just a different mindset than than uh, than the FBI. I got to be careful what I say. My son's an FBI agent. Well, yeah, but you know, they, they they had tea time set up. They would stroll <laughs> to classes in their khakis and their blue well, they, polos. They literally would be walking to class with their coffees in their hands, and we're sprinting down the hall <laughs> trying to get to ours, and uh, and they'd be looking at us like we're crazy. So I think what happened was DEA wanted to show the the FBI how we run. Uh, an academy versus how they did so it was pretty rough so every every morning uh we would come to class and we started out the same we always started out about 46 people in the class and and every morning bob parks would come in and he would say he would go hey you know class 39 lost another two and you're like oh my god so i i had you know a wife and three kids i was you know 28 years old i'm like man i just gave up my police job i was doing pretty well over there am i even going to make it through this thing you know so uh, so it was, it was a pretty, pretty hectic, uh, uh, academy to go through. And, and every day we got a reminder about that. We did pretty good. I think we graduated, I don't know, maybe 36, 38 of the 46, but it was just tough. I mean, uh, there was one guy that was in the class. I remember he had a hard time with the run. So the very first day you end up doing your mile and a half run or mile run or whatever it was. And, and I remember him coming back and he came in last. And I remember, uh, you know, Bob Parks going up to him because I was standing right there as as I finished and, you know, people were coming in and, and, he, and he says, hey, where are you from? And the guy says, I'm from, uh, you know, uh, Tacoma Park Police Department in Maryland. And he goes, 
He goes, well, if I were you, I would go and I'd take a shower. I would get on the phone. I'd call them back and ask for my job back. <laughs> it's, like, it's like my first day on the job. I'm like, oh There's my motivation God. for you. Hey, pal, uh, I like, hope you kept your seat warm at the police department there. <laughs> what the heck did I sign up for? Uh, hope so you didn't anyway, burn any bridges uh, over was, there, you know? It was pretty rough. He actually didn't make it. He actually made it farther than I thought he would. He made it to about, I don't know, probably the eighth or eighth week of the academy, but but the, the pressure was on. I mean, there was no, it was a high, high pressure environment, as you know, Steve. And then not only that, you'd end up having to, you know, do all these practical exercises. Uh, mm -hmm. So you're, you're constantly, constantly working. And I remember they scheduled a lot of folks were trying to get back for Thanksgiving. We went right through all the holidays, of course. And uh, people would, would buy their tickets. And all of a sudden, after they bought their tickets to go back just for like a day, uh, you know, the, the instructors would say, uh, sorry, we're doing a practical on Thanksgiving Day. And I mean, boy, you talk about oh, they they certainly wanted to, to test your commitment to, yeah. to the Drug Enforcement Administration, whether you were really going to be part of it or whether you weren't. And Holy that was cow. the kind of things that they did. Pretty, pretty rough. Well, start. Welcome to the first of many missed holidays and special <laughs> events, right? Oh yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, well, but you talked about so Miami was at the top of your list with you and your wife. Did you decide? Was that just like you said? Hey, you're tired of the cold. You know, it gets cold up. We've had our snowmageddons. You know, you know that. Right. Um, but um, what was the lure? Again, I know it's the height of Miami, but that was kind of like, but if you're going to get into DEA and, and make your bones, right, that's kind of like a place to do it. If you, what did you used to say, Steve, if you were in Miami and you couldn't make a case, you, you didn't belong on DEA basically, <laughs> yeah, you, right? You need to find a new career. Yeah. <laughs> I always tell people that literally uh, cocaine was falling from the sky. I mean, they would be dropping plane loads of this stuff, yeah. various, you know, various airstrips and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, in some of these areas close to Miami, I mean, it was crazy. And, but you're, but you're right, Steve, it was a really, and it was a dangerous, uh, dangerous place to be mm -hmm. at. I, I mean, uh, honestly, not only was it, was there a lot of opportunity, but you talk about getting your feet wet and being in a dangerous place. I mean, you just never knew what was going to happen. So uh, so it was a, it was a heck of a start. So I would say Miami was probably my top pick. I think I was like, well, let me, let me, if I'm going to get into it, I might as well really get into it. And so I went, uh, so I think Miami is the top. I think I probably put Baltimore there so I wouldn't have to move since I hired on in Howard County. And I don't even recall what my third choice would have been, but, uh, so I, I got what I wanted, but it was about half the class ended up going down there anyway. So hey, Steve, who was matter. the agent, who was the agent handling Luis Navia that we interviewed from DEA? Um, uh, Eric was Kulbinski. So yeah, you were talking about stuff falling from the side. We interviewed uh, Luis Navia. He got he got popped coming out of Venezuela with twenty six tons of coke. He was, but that was the thing. He made a deal, right? And uh, part of it was, but they they called it the lighthouse. It was like the target. They they say there's our lighthouse, and literally, like you said, dope was just falling from the sky. They were just throwing the lighthouse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, Mike, while we were in the academy, did you have to write any memos for anything? <laughs> I saw that on your on your list there. You know that's really going way back. I think uh, I think every little thing that you did, uh, it, you know, they would make you write a memo on. I I don't really remember. I remember the, the thing I remember was we we had to get the thirty five millimeter cameras and and take those out, and and that was really way too technical for uh, more than half the class to load up a 35 millimeter camera. As we found out trying to get this podcast started this morning. <laughs> <laughs> so this is why this is why I'm still a cop. And uh, that's why I don't get into all this technology stuff. But I just remember there was a guy, I, I forget what his name was, it was who was our, uh, his name was Travis, I think was his first name. He was doing our, teaching our, uh, our, photography there because we had to do i mean really dea you had to be a master uh, a, really a, a jack of all trades okay they, they, you really 
you're so short staffed. It's like, uh, if you wanted to get something done, you pretty much had to do it yourself, you know? Yep. So, and I just remember him coming in and he just had all these rolls, those, those little 35 millimeter canisters of film. And he's like, he's like calling out names, you know, he'd be like Smith, John, boom. And he's taking these things and he's throwing them at, at people like, Whoa, what's going on here? And he says, you all failed this, this, uh, you know, this process of taking photos, like, man, we can't even take photos. That's how bad we were. But, uh, but anyway, so I remember, I think everybody had to do a memo on that. And then uh, just every little thing. Yeah. Where's I, and, you know, honestly, it's so far back. I can't remember, but I'm sure I, I probably, uh, uh, screwed up about as much as anybody in the academy and had to write a memo here. Yeah, there. but as rough as it was, you had, I mean, it's like everybody else. Javier was talking about, He, even though he was partying before he got to DEA, you know, working down there in the sheriff's office, it was like, once he got there, he said, no, man, it's like, you got to pass the test. You know, he mm-hmm. stayed in, then he did the homework. Now, when you were going through, you were close enough. Or No, where did you say you went through Quantico, right? So you were you able right. to go home on the weekend, see the family? Not, not really, not much. I mean, I, I, a couple of times, but, but honestly, there was so much to do. It was so much work. Uh, and the expectations were, you know, you were there yet. It was really busy. And what Javier told you was right. I mean, th- it was a very challenging academy. I was, I was kind of surprised because when I went through the police academy, I mean, it was, it was challenging, but not like that. Not like that yeah. where the pressure was, the pressure was high. And, and I mean, I constantly was wondering like, man, what I get myself into here, but, uh, but it's been a, you know, honestly, I, I wouldn't give it up for anything. It's been a very interesting uh, career. It's exposed me to things and my family, to things we would have never seen uh, in a mm-hmm. lifetime. Uh, yeah, let's yeah, let's yeah. talk about Karachi. I mean, <laughs> oh man. So there's a consulate in Karachi, right? The embassy's in Islamabad, and okay. I used to run into some DEA guys. Now, did you grow out the beard, look like you were freaking Taliban? You know, <laughs> or were you a suit and tie guy at the no, embassy? I was, I was pretty much a suit and tie guy. Uh, well, actually, consulate, you could actually go in more like with polo shirts because it was, as you know, uh, down there the heat in Karachi it was like on a, on a cold <sighs> day it was about 110 degrees. So mm. yeah, we were we'd be able to go and the humidity uh, and the smell. Oh it the was, smell. It was, it was all, yeah, it was awful. But, uh, but you know, the reason was, okay. So, so here, here was the motivating factor that sent me to Karachi. Okay. So I'd only been on the job for, for three years, less than three years. And the reason I put in for that was because I had actually taken a $10,000 pay cut to go with DEA. Okay. So Say what from uh, $10,000. So, and I was making, okay. So a little bit of frame of reference for you. I was pretty much topped out as, as a journeyman or whatever, uh, an officer there in Howard County at $27,000 a year. I hired on a DEA at $17,000 a year and went down. And even though my parents lived in Florida, math was obviously not your strong suit either. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I figured, well, I figured, you know, a, a federal career would be uh, would be different, uh, would be interesting and would be a, a a good move for me at that point. I was right at that breaking point at seven years. You figure, OK, am I going to stay with the department or if right. I'm going to make a move? Now's the time to do it. OK, so I figured, well, let me get let me do this. And and so I went through it 17 grand a year. So I've got a I got a wife and three kids and we're down there. So it was tough financially, very, very tough to make it. Uh, and then I'd have these senior agents that would come to me like, hey, if you go overseas, you know, they kind of cover the cost of your housing. If you go to a place like, you know, Pakistan, I remember one of the guys uh, asked me, and this is before you had the internet, before you could Google anything or whatever. Um, he said, uh, he goes, you know, if you go, you go to a place, uh, he, he goes, we well, ought to think about going overseas. And I said, well, you like Rome or, you know, Paris. And he goes, no. yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I, well, I, I didn't even know how many, how many offices we had overseas. He goes, no, no. He goes, yeah, just like that. He goes, yeah, right. He goes, no, but you ought to think about a place like, uh, 
you know, Bombay or Karachi or or whatever. And I and I started looking at it. And then I realized that you could get, uh, it was like a 25% differential, a 20% hazard pay and 5% differential because your work week was different because you were in a Muslim area there. So, uh, so you'd work, uh, I think it was, you work Sunday through Thursday or something. I forget exactly what it was. So, um, so I said, yeah, I was like, yeah, let me, let me do that. And I actually got selected. I was kind of surprised. I was kind of surprised it was that competitive. I mean, we had 13 people that were on the BQ list for that and I got selected. So I was, I was kind of happy about that. And we went, it, it was interesting to try to get, because you didn't have any Google, you didn't have any way of, of, of knowing kind of what you're getting into. And so I know my wife wasn't going to be real happy about going to a place like Pakistan. So I didn't really know how to introduce the idea to her. So what I, <laughs> so back then, so it's not like, like I said, you couldn't get on the internet or anything. So I would, I would go to the library and I would get like a book, like on India and I put it on the coffee table, you know? And, uh, and she's looking at it. She's like, that's interesting. What do you got this book? And I don't know. I'm just kind of looking over things here. You know, she's like, what are you already running a long-term op on your own wife. <laughs> So then, so then I go and I take that book back. I get another two books or whatever on Pakistan or something like that. She's like, "Hey, what's with the uh, what's with these books on Pakistan and and India?" You know, and I'm like, "Well, you know, I, I just just kind of looking into some things." And then I finally explained to her, you know, the benefits of going overseas. And she finally, you know, obviously it's not the kind of thing. Hey, uh, hey, honey, let's go to Karachi, Pakistan, and then she's going to love the idea. So so it really took uh, it really took me several months. Wait a minute, we're going to leave Miami, nice Miami. Me, all the different food people speak our language we're kind of accustomed here now we're moving to pakistan i mean yeah. it's like saying hey honey let's go on vacation in iran i hear it's great this time of year <laughs> <laughs> oh man so uh anyway so we uh so she she came around uh, on that and we started talking about it how the benefits of that and it was interesting because i remember being on surveillance i was out there like two in the morning and uh she's she calls me up on my um Oh, she pages me because we didn't have cell phones back then. So she, right. me. so I go to a, I go to a pay phone and she says, Hey, I just got the strangest call from Bob Parks. Uh, this, he, do you know Bob? And I said, yeah, he was my class court. He's at, he goes, well, he's out in Pakistan. And he called and said, you're looking good to go out there. And, and so anyway, uh, so we got the job, went out there and, uh, I just remember all the vaccinations our kids had to get. I mean, we had to get yellow fever, gamma goblin, uh, Hepatitis, uh, rabies, Hepatitis, yeah. you name it. We had to get everything. I was, my my youngest was three years old. I was afraid, honestly, when he was getting the vaccinations. The needles, some of those needles were so long, I thought I was going to go on one side of his arm and out the other. Oh, it was oh. pretty. It was some pretty rough stuff. So the family, the family went through a lot. I tell you, we went through a lot as a family. Uh, and uh, but but quite frankly, uh, Pakistan was not a bad assignment. Uh, it wasn't a bad assignment till the, the the first war and the Gulf started, and then we had to get evacuated. But aside from that, it, it was, <laughs> aside from war and the <laughs> Taliban just, and stuff just like a minor, that, it was minor skirmish. Aside from being not too far from a war zone, uh, we were. So, uh, <laughs> what was your work? What, what were you doing at the consulate? It was uh, it was all heroin. Uh, so we went, uh, and I remember having like one of the first uh, cases that I had. We were able to get five kilos of heroin. And typically speaking, when you when you got these uh, these cases uh, and obviously for delivery up, uh, you know, to the U.S., what they would do would be to take the um, would say you hold on to the heroin. So in other words, I call New York and I said, hey, New York, uh, an agent that had been in Pakistan. I said, hey, look, we got this. There's going to be a delivery to some bad guys out there in New York. And he says, OK, look, we'll we'll just go ahead and substitute the heroin with uh, with some sham heroin. And we'll put a little bit of real stuff in there to get the charges that we need. And I remember saying, hey, uh, 
but that if you do that, that's pretty much going to blow this case. They're going to know the, the who the informant was on this. And they're like, yeah, that's the way we do it. So I ended up uh, having come from Miami. I, I called a, a guy uh, who actually ended up replacing me there when I came out, Bill Reed in Miami. And I said, hey, uh, Bill, he goes, hey, we'll take it here. We'll fly your we'll fly your informant back. We can we can stage it out of here and um, and actually deliver the real heroin, which was good for a couple of reasons. One was that we were able to 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 establish contact from the folks in New York that were going to pick it up and get all this uh, telephone data where they're coming down and you know, plane trips and everything else uh, that we were able to, that we were able to get from uh, the extra evidence that we needed to do this. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so the case uh, we ended up doing this delivery and we ended up getting uh, on the first one, five kilos of heroin. We had three people that came down from New York. Uh, One was a guy named Salvador Gambino. One was a guy named Paul Keanu. And I can't remember the third guy, but they were all mobsters up there. They were all, uh, you know, uh, you know what you mentioned before about La Cosa Nostra. They were all, <laughs> all from that. Everybody's group. name ends in a vowel when you deal with stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> and they came down. And uh, so we were able to, uh, we were able to pop them in. And we were able to do several controlled deliveries like that. It, the, the process actually worked, worked very well. So we had a lot of luck with that. So we were doing a lot of great heroin deliveries there. And, and, uh, and I, I believe you all probably interviewed Derek Malls. Did you, did you know? Oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. So, you probably so, heard, you probably heard him with, with your window closed, didn't you? Well, I had breakfast with him the other morning. So, so Derek and I kind of were recounting the, the 20 kilograms of heroin that we brought out of, out of uh, Karachi together. He came out, we had a, a load that was going to New York. And of course, as you know, Steve, you got to get these country clearances. So we had to yeah. fly from, we had country clearance out of Pakistan then had to go to, uh, had to go to Paris and then from Paris uh, to New York and you got to get the country clearances, make sure everybody's on board, but you're unarmed. So you're flying his flight. So he's got, he's got a big, uh, you know, rucksack there with, uh, with uh, 10 kilos of heroin. And I got 10 and we're just throwing it on. See, Derek was telling us about that story when we interviewed him. It's like, uh, you're sweating bullets the whole way. Hey, now, did you work with the the special investigative group or federal investigative agency? They had, uh, I'm trying to think what? we had uh, the, Pakistan Narcotics Control Board that we work with, and we also work with uh, there was military group or you, uh, the customs, Pakistan customs. Those are the two people. So that I was, was going to show you that if you can see that. That's one of the pins. It's hard to see over Zoom. Oh, there wow. it is. Yeah. Huh? So that was the special investigative group. We did some training for those guys at the Federal Investigative Agency. But I'm yeah, I mean, it's, sure they, I'm not even sure they existed when I was there because I'm sure they may not have. Some of these yeah. things were artifacts after 9-11, you know, and uh, after Khalid, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed obviously was caught in uh, Pakistan, um, one of the planners of 9-11. So, you know, they changed. I think they changed a lot of things. But yeah. So uh, was it just why Karachi? Why not Islamabad? Uh, because that was what was open. So oh. I applied for I applied for whatever where, where there were vacancies there and was able to get okay. picked up. And I, I went actually with a couple of people from Miami, Mike Austin and Charlie Graham, both of uh, who came out there at the same time that I did. And it was really kind of funny because all of our wives got got pregnant at the same time. So it was all it was the joke. Was, There's uh, nothing why, else why to do guys, in Pakistan. <laughs> you mean while you guys were out doing control deliveries, your wife's got pregnant. What happened here? <laughs> Yeah. Hey, Charlie, man, that's, that's, I, don't know. that's, friends, that's I never really thought of it that way, Steve. That's a good point. <laughs> How'd that happen? Uh, uh, Charlie, Charlie, stand up, man. He was one of my best friends. We ended up uh, in North Carolina together. Yeah. Great guy. Greg, I haven't talked to him in years, but, uh, but he's a great guy for sure. I think he so, retired in Greensboro. Yeah. So how long, so you were scheduled for what, probably to be there three years in Pakistan before the first Gulf War, right? It was a, it was a two-year tour. Two-year? So my wife uh, came back, so she got pregnant, so she came back 
that summer, let's see, so I was either 89, so we're into 90. She came back in the summer of 90. Uh, and then we ended up, uh, she came back to have the baby. So we she had a medevac to have the baby in Maryland here, which uh, which worked out well. Then I flew back uh, just around Christmas time, November, um, end of November, early December. And we were we were checking in with the embassy to see uh, whether or not we should come back or not. And they said, Oh no, it looks like it's uh, you're good to come back with the family and all that. So we end up flying back, I think right after the new year and uh, literally we're getting off the plane and I'm looking at the turnstile. Uh, we're trying to get our luggage. One of the guys from the agency comes over to me and he says, uh, Mike, what the hell are you doing here? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, we're getting ready to evacuate tomorrow. And I said, you're kidding me. Oh my <laughs> God. So now we just did a, we did a trip across the globe uh, to get back to Pakistan with a, with a brand new baby in tow, uh, three other kids, a uh, thousand pieces of luggage, uh, brand new baby stroller. So we stopped at Brussels on the way go, going out there and we had half of our stuff was stolen. Man. We got, we, we got oh. to, half our luggage was gone or brand new, you know, double stroller, uh, for the baby and all that kind of stuff mm. only to find out that we had to now go to the, go down and, and, and buy the biggest suitcases that we could and pack everything up and head out the next day. Uh, that really was a pretty tough time. <laughs> oh, but think of the day. frequent flyer miles you got for that. Uh, I, I don't think that the, the frequent flyer miles is what my, my wife had in mind. When, you know, <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> you know, I don't think she was uh boy. That was a, I can tell you that was a really tough, that was a tough, tough thing to go through. I, I couldn't believe as soon as we got there, we had to turn around and come out. So we went back. So she had to stay with her parents in, uh, in Maryland to have the baby. And this time I called my father and I said, Hey, look, uh, uh, dad, uh, do you mind if we stay with you till we get through this evacuation? Because no, no, come on, you can stay in Florida. So he shows up at the airport, the Orlando International Airport, and he's got this old, you know, Chrysler, and he's got a U-Haul uh, on the back, and, and he just there you uh, go. And it was we opened up, and we throw all the luggage in, and and we were off and running, you know. So we, I mean, we had like. I just remember you could have like a, a couple, two pieces of luggage. And back then you didn't have the same restrictions that you had on luggage. So we got the biggest suitcases that we oh, could, yeah. that we could get. <laughs> we packed everything that we could get, get out uh, in time to get out of there. And uh, it, it was, it was just a ton of stuff. But uh, well, now yeah. that baby that was born, what number was that for you guys? That was number four. So that's my son. who's oh now gosh. an FBI agent. He was an air force Academy grad. Now he's an FBI agent out in, uh, in Oakland, California. So you got you got to evacuate mama yourself and four little kids in a day. <laughs> a newborn, yeah, in a day. Yes, yeah, yeah. Government yeah. government efficiency at its finest. Let's fly you all the way across the world so we can just fly you right back. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, my wife would still have a few choice words about the way that, <laughs> bet. that whole thing went down. <laughs> oh, gee, well, but but I mean, like you said, that was kind of fun. I remember too the. Um, we were staying out of the Serena Hotel up in Islamabad. Did you ever get up there, or did you stay in Karachi the whole time? I no, I went to Islamabad a couple times. I'm trying to think if I, if I stayed at the Serena or not. I think I did actually. Yeah, yeah. That well, Serena seemed to be a little bit more safe. They ended up blowing up the Hilton that was down there just a year after I was there. A truck bomb came in, and oh. uh, just uh, you know. Now, did you have any issues when you were back there too? Um, you know, we had that we had problems with the ISI, the Inter Services Intelligence, Pakistani intelligence. They were the ones who, for you folks out there, here's a pro tip: they created the Taliban. So, mm. um, did you have those folks working against you or any issues uh, inside of Pakistan, other than working with the narcotics guys? No, we didn't. I know. You know, you still had. Uh, if you talk about the Mujahideen uh, and the fighters yep. they had up there, uh, 
that was all still going on when I was there. I didn't really quite understand. We, we really, because uh, I know that uh, that that was the, the the forces that fought Russia that were getting our equipment that ended up turning around and I believe turning out to be the Taliban. So, uh, so we ended up uh, arming uh, what ended up ultimately becoming our enemies there. But, but, uh, but no, we didn't really have much of a problem there. The thing that I found with Pakistan was and we had a pretty good relationship with with the Pakistan authorities but we we were very careful as to what kind of information that we gave them because we were afraid uh, that it might get yeah. compromised and and I don't mean that in a disparaging way it's just that that they live in so much poverty over there that um that you had to really be careful uh who was doing it what It's angle. like Colombia or any place else when you have that disparity it doesn't take mm-hmm. much to bribe somebody and get information out of them So we would get for example we would get like a uh, uh you know, I get a call and I always wanted to go out with them on these cases that they did, but they would never call me until the case was over. So you might get, for example, a two kilo seizure in Karachi, okay, that came down from uh, the Northwest Frontier Province or something. So you have uh, two kilos there and everybody would be, you know, uh, slapping five and everything else. And then you find out uh, kind of on the inside that it really wasn't two kilos to start with. It was a little bit more than that. And then uh, you had to pay the informant. And since you couldn't pay the informant money, you'd give them a kilo. And then you... <laughs> so these are the kinds of things that, you know, it was, so it was kind of a, it was an it was a different world. It was a different world. It was eye opening for me because, uh, because, you know, we, we go by such strict, uh, you know, ethical standards in the U S uh, when it comes to law enforcement and, and the way that we do our conduct ourselves and to, to be in an area like that and to see that firsthand was kind of like, wow, boy, what a, what an awakening it was to, uh, to how different cultures do different things. Well, and it's how they look at stuff. One of the guys in our classes that we were doing some training with was the deputy superintendent at, the superintendent of the Islamabad Capital Territory Police, number two guy, Farhat Cosme. I still stay in touch with him to today. But as you drive around, you know, the traffic out there is crazy. And I said, your, your traffic's crazy. He says, how many people are in Islamabad? He says, 100,000. I said, well, you know, how bad are the accidents? He says, oh, about one person a day dies. He says, but that's not bad considering the way our people drive. And I'm going, can you imagine in our county, Mike, if we had one person dying a day on the road? I mean, it would be, there would be investigations. There'd be, the public would be saying, you know, what are you guys doing about this? But over there, it was like, no, you know, it, hey. it was, there was a, you know, safety last. I mean, you you would have like a bus that would literally you'd have 30 it'd be completely packed like sardines and then you'd have 30 or 40 people on top of the bus like on a roof rack and they would they'd be going over these bridges and we've been in and out of traffic and i would i would read i forget what it was i think it was called the dawn newspaper uh you know every morning and you know, every, about once a month, I'd see, you know, a, a major traffic accident, you know, several people killed and, and you know, like a bus went over the bridge or something like that. It was really they, they just didn't uh, have the same appreciation, I think, for life. They, they'd walk across mm-hmm. the street, wouldn't look. And, you know, I, I just remember there was I was one time I was at the American Club and and somebody comes in and hey, there was somebody laying dead in the middle of the street, you know, I'm like, you know, on on Sharia Faisal Boulevard or whatever, you know, and I'm like, oh, OK, you know, it was like it, it was just. It wasn't a big deal uh, for them, as and safety was not was not a concern like we have here in the U.S. So yeah. I just, ended up going over to India to work with some guys. There was Andhra Pradesh was called the Greyhound Unit. They were a direct action unit, uh, did anti terrorism stuff. But it was funny. We we land there. We're doing a going to go to a hotel, and we're driving, and the traffic's crazy, and there's people hopping off. And I'm, I remember one of the Indian guys we we're with is Ravi Tangarala. I'm, I'm going. I'm looking at all of these people dodging and hopping off stuff. I said, look. 
look at how, how come is it that you guys haven't won a gold medal like in the Olympics for gymnastics? He goes, oh, because in the Olympics, there are rules, my friend. There are no rules out there. It's yeah. not like you go to Taiwan or Singapore. Everything is orderly. People stop at the right. stoplight. There it's like you take your life in your hands every time you go yeah. out on the road. Yeah, I say it's like driving bumper cars. Uh, absolutely no rules. I mean, it was it was crazy. And then you'd have people, you'd have people that that had uh, you know disabilities that would like be on these sort of skateboards and stuff. You probably remember this, Morgan. And if they wanted to go from block to block on the street, they would just grab onto the bumper of a car and and go like uh, you know several blocks. And then if they needed to take a turn, they let go of that bumper and they grab on another bumper uh, of another car that's taking a turn or whatever. It was like swinging on jungle vines, you know, it, watching it, it Tarzan. Really yeah, it's, it's yeah. so. I mean, I mean, honestly, the 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 images and the the sights and smells and everything of of Pakistan to me are, are so vivid. They're still like etched in my brain. You know, it's it's you can't it really you can't even really imagine it uh, unless you experience it personally. Yeah, the stif- and I tell you, we stayed at the so the and the Serena hotels like at the foothills of the Himalayas. The humidity was so stifling mm-hmm. you had to base i mean you were like get me indoors get me indoors because it was about anyway but i digress uh so as you moved on so now did you have to go to language school no no because uh, it was a two-year assignment uh and because urdu was such a difficult language i figured you know it's, it's way too much to it take you two years to learn the language look into this way if you'd learned the language you never would have made it over there because you would have been getting out of the your two your two-year language course and they would oh gulf war you know yeah, we're not sitting yeah, that's true. Yeah, for sure. So, but I, I know you probably did a lot of things. Let's talk real quick too before we jump into what you're doing in Loudoun County. Uh, you cross paths. Uh, you used to work with uh, JP to Javier uh, out in San Francisco, right? So I did. Yeah. So I had finished my assignment in uh, in Bangkok, Thailand, and uh, which was uh, my third overseas assignment. I'd done two years in uh, Seoul, Korea, uh, in uh, I think '98 through 2000, two or three, two and a half years there. Got promoted. I was chief of public affairs for DEA. Uh, came back, went back to Thailand. Started out as the assistant country attaché, then the acting country attaché, and it evolved into the acting regional director. So I actually I started out where I just had the offices in Thailand, and then expanded to actually thirteen. Let's see, fifteen offices in thirteen countries covered wow. time zones, and uh, and then you know when I came back, when I came back stateside, I went to uh, San Francisco, and that's where I I got to meet Javier and work with Javier out there. Now you were you were an uh, assistant special agent in charge at that point, right? That's right, right. So you're part of Javier's executive staff there, right? That's that's right, that's right. So I, I ran, yeah, too. You had admin and you had operations. I pretty much ran operations. I had everything from the northern uh, uh, border up there in Oregon down to San Jose, I think east of Stockton. So uh, a lot of activity there was San Francisco. <laughs> oh, we were talking to JP about it. There were some. A tenuous, and even Michelle Linhart, tenuous political difficulties talking with the city of San Francisco, especially since back at that time, uh, marijuana was a Schedule One. You know, right? Nothing, nothing legal about it. So that created some interesting conversations. We understand between you folks and the state of California and the city of San Francisco. Well, yeah, and, and if you go to Oakland, you had Oaksterdam University, and I think they took the logo from Harvard and made their own like diploma for that kind of thing. And teaching people how to how to grow weed and how to do indoor grows and everything else. And I mean, you would see these houses that really were destroyed with mold. And you run a well, I'd be if I owned a property there in California, I'd be afraid to rent it out because uh, you rent it out. Next thing you know, they're stealing electricity, doing an indoor grow, and they would they would destroy these homes that were. That could never be never be lived in again. I mean, it was it was really something to see. And I think the problem with most people when they look at uh, marijuana, they don't realize uh, they don't realize how destructive it is. They don't realize how 
uh, how unregulated it is, how how the THC varies. How well, that's what we're saying. The THC content today is not what it was 20 years, 30 years ago when I was in college. You were in college about the same time. It is not the one or two percent stuff right. no, from way no. back when. And people don't. I mean, it was it was low percentage back then. And, and I think most of the people that that get behind this legislation. Uh, that started all this kind of stuff where, you know, if they were in high school smoking weed, they're, they're the, probably the best they're going to get is about 6%. And then, and then you look at uh, stuff. Now you look at these vapes and stuff like that, that are, that are pushing 90% over 90% THC. It's, it's really dangerous. And now you certainly got the fentanyl going on some of this stuff, anything that's out there that honestly, that's any kind of a drug that's out there that, that these kids are taking, uh, that's not, that's not prescribed by a doctor and purchased at a pharmacy is, is so, so dangerous now. And, and it's killing people. And that's, that's really what we got to do is make sure that we get the word out to make sure that these kids, especially these kids, but even the parents, I mean, I, yeah. these parents don't have it. Got to start at home. Well, look, they're installing vape detectors in some schools because kids are going in. If there's no more smoking in the boys room, you know, the old, you know, song, it's, you know, vaping in the boys room, vaping in the girls room. You know, I just, I just saw on the news last night where you can now get the, uh, uh, Narcan kits over the counter. It's no longer requiring a prescription. Yeah. So I saw the article in the Washington post uh, today about that. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's another thing. I, I you know, I think that's, so you've got to look at this holistically. I mean, I look at, I, I had a little fentanyl forum. Um, last May, we had we had Derek Moss was the keynote speaker. I had Jen Bro as as you know, Steve, because that's where we did that mm-hmm. event out there. She lost her 25 year old son about a year and a half ago to an overdose, oh, um, you know, a fentanyl uh, overdose or a poisoning, uh, whatever you want to call it. And uh, we had uh, Tom Carr was the Hyda director. We had all mm-hmm. we had uh, Jessica Aber from the U.S. Attorney's Office. We had an all star caster, people from mental health, people from substance abuse. To kind of hit it from all angles. The the only problem I see, and I think it's good, you can save lives if people can get if you can get the Narcan over the counter now, which is good, but it doesn't give us an accurate assessment as to what's going on. Because if if somebody overdoses on on fentanyl, we're not gonna we're not gonna know about it because we're not responding, and then we'll mm-hmm. we'll never get to find out who it was that distributed that stuff. It's all kind of handled in house, and and it's 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 actually hurting us from a law enforcement perspective to really get a good handle on what's going on out there now. Yeah, and we're going to work into that too because I want to work you through some of that too because you a lot of your DEA experience led into you making the decision to run for sheriff, you know, in Loudoun County. So, but as you were going through DEA, um, when did you end up back in this area? Because you ended up right doing some time at headquarters, and I did. So I went uh, basically went from Pakistan to uh, Tampa. I uh, did about four and a half, maybe five years in Tampa. Then I got promoted to uh, to the border in South Texas. So I was in McAllen. So I had uh, that border experience. Uh, I tell you, it was, it was an interesting uh, job. Was that when Paul Crane and Abe Perez were down yes, in that area too? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We, we talked with them about capturing El Chapo. Were you down there during that time? I was down there when Paul Crane was in the group, not when El Chapo was uh, uh, was captured, but certainly when uh, when okay. uh, when Paul Crane was in the group. Yeah, he actually he was uh, he was he was under my supervision there in in uh, in McAllen. Yeah, so. So did that. So so was there. I used to tell people that it was like being having an overseas assignment without any of the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, without it getting the twenty five percent hazard, you know, uh, differential and hazard pay. Yeah. So we went from there. Then I went to uh, Seoul, Korea, as the uh, country attaché out there. And then I, uh, while I was out there, I got promoted to uh, to uh, head up public affairs uh, in in DA headquarters. And and I always tell people this. Uh, you know, I by that time I probably had about. 25, 20 years, 25 years in enforcement. And 
I tell people I learned more being a chief of public affairs in the three years I did that job than everything combined because all of a sudden you had to be an expert on every piece of information that was coming in, every incident that happened. And you're talking DEA is a global agency. So you're talking about, you know, incidents that happened overseas. You're talking about incidents that happened in all parts of the country. Uh, and, and all of a sudden you get the call from the Washington Post or the New York Times. Hey, tell us about this. Tell us about that. Mm-hmm. And you had to, I mean, you talk about having to brief up quick and be able to to, to provide an answer that that was uh you know palatable to DEA that uh that 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 would answer their questions. I mean it was a it was a tough, tough job. And then certainly uh so Donnie Marshall was the administrator at the time that I came in. And and uh, I like to tell the story uh because it was it was when uh, O'Reilly um the O'Reilly factor was on and and I used to see it when I was overseas when I was in Korea. For some reason it was on the Armed Forces Network, but it was not on in the northern virginia on the cable networks there and i remember uh you know donnie marshall uh you know getting an invitation to go on the show and it was right when the movie traffic had come out steve as you Mm -hmm. remember with michael douglas and Mm -hmm. we had some of our people in there terry Parham and uh john uh, brown john brown exactly so uh so so it was the the premise was hey we're going to uh we're going to do this uh uh you know interview about how how realistic that movie was so uh, so I'm telling, you know, I'm saying, Mr. You know, um, uh, Administrator Marshall, uh, you know, this guy is pretty much a pit bull. So don't be surprised if he goes off script, blah, blah, blah. And he said, nah, don't worry about it, because <clears throat> I don't think anybody had had seen uh, much of uh, Villa Raleigh at the time. So just before we're getting ready to go down, and I remember people that helped me kind of brief him up were Dave Gaddis. I'm trying to think of who else. Or, oh, and Mike, Mike McManus. So we're, 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 we're briefing up. Uh, and then all of a sudden, just before we're going, he goes, Hey, do you have any video of, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, of, of, uh, uh, so, so we, so we go in and we pull some, some video and we show him, uh, the video, um, uh, of O'Reilly and, and he's, you can tell then he gets pretty nervous. So, so we go down there and then they put him on the camera and, and I'm sitting there, I got an ear, I got an earphone in and I'm off to the side. And the first question they asked me, hey, we appreciate what you're doing. We love uh, DEA. It's a great job. You know, we love, uh, it's great that you're the administrator, blah, blah, blah. What'd you think of the movie? And he goes, I think it was pretty realistic. He kind of goes into it a little bit. And they said, okay, uh, now tell us why your guys in Mexico can't carry guns. <laughs> it's like, oh man, he got, oh. Like, you talk about getting blindsided. It was like yeah. one of the things that never even occurred to us that O'Reilly might ask. So I remember then, uh, so you could tell he got a little bit shaken. He recovered. He did fine. But but you could tell he got a little bit shaken by the question. And then I remember uh, when Asa Hutchinson's came in, because Asa was a, uh, you know, former congressman, a politician, a mm-hmm. pretty smooth operator, very good public speaker. So he comes in and I remember going down. And I said, you know, Mr. Hutchinson, uh, O'Reilly's asking you to come on. Yeah, yeah, Mike, I'll be happy to do that. I'll be happy to go on his show. And That's like, a good yeah. Arkansas accent. <laughs> yeah, and he goes, he goes, he goes, he goes uh, I said, well, you know, he's, he said, ah, don't worry about it, Mike. I know Bill O'Reilly. I'm, I'm, he goes, I said, what can I get for you? As you want me to do some talking point, he goes, yeah, just give me a couple of newspaper articles of the most recent stuff that's happening. So we go down there and, um, uh, and one of the lessons that I learned from uh, when it comes down to, I, I thought this was just brilliant to watch uh, watch the interchange between uh, Asa Hutchison and, and Bill O'Reilly. So O'Reilly's like, uh, you know, hey, congratulations on the job, you know, blah, blah, blah. I love what you guys are doing. 
And then I just remember uh, him asking, he goes, so how are you liking it so far? And he's like, well, you know, Bill, I guess I just came back from the back from the Arkansas watermelon festival and we're just loving everything <laughs> here. And, you know, and, uh, so then he goes, uh, and then I forget what the question was that he tries to hit him with one of these hard questions, you know, and, and he goes, you know, Bill, he goes, that's really a great question. He goes, you know, but a better question would be, why didn't we do blah, blah, blah. And so he ended up steering. And I'm like, I was amazed by it. I was like, he took wow. that interview exactly the direction that he wanted it to go. And I tell that story because it's just interesting to me that the things that I was able to learn in that job and just watching the way people handled themselves mm-hmm. and uh, the information that was coming in, it was I mean, you talk about baptism by fire, everything coming in. I had no background in media relations or public, uh, 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 you know, public information officer, uh, anything. So, so for me, that was really, really a, a learning experience, a, a heavy learning experience. But I, uh, but I survived it for three yeah. years. <laughs> yeah, well, it looks like it uh, probably paid off pretty well for you in life after DEA here, bro. Well, it's it's these things, you know, uh, I guess you know, when you look at things like that, uh, you know, maybe all these things that you don't know how, why they're happening uh, mm-hmm. as they're going on. So I guess God has a plan because I would have never, I, re- I remember one of the first interviews I did as sheriff, uh, I forget what news, what news group was in. They came in there and they set up the camera and they said to me, uh, they, they said, I forget what the, uh, who, who the interviewer was, but she says, well, I guess uh, you probably always wanted to be sheriff like your whole life. And I said, I said, no, not not really. And she says, well, when did you decide you want to be sheriff? And I said, well, about a year ago, I had somebody mention that I ought to run for sheriff. And I gave it some thought and I did. And she goes, because most of the time, the sheriffs, uh, it's, it's usually the undersheriff that gets that, that gets a job because they're known in the community and they're they're backed by their their current sheriff and all that as the sheriff moves on. That was not the case here. I came completely in from the outside and uh was able to utilize some of the skills I learned from DEA and certainly the background that I had, which was really diverse, which is something that the county hadn't seen before. And I think they were ready for uh, for, for a little, I, I think, advancement here. I think uh, I think things had gotten pretty stale uh, countywide and in, 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 certainly with the sheriff's office. They I believe the way they measured success was, you know, you handle a call, you know, you get a call, you go out there, you handle it, you write a report and that's it. They didn't realize all the other things that you can do to advance a, a very positive agenda here, uh, uh, you know, get involved with all these community things that we do and, you know, really enhance the, uh, uh, you know, the school resource officer program like we yep. have, community forums that we do, all these uh, all these quarterly meetings that we do, all this interpersonal contact that we have directly with the community that they serve. I think they were, I just think that the, the area of Loudoun well, County. Was it was time for Loudoun County to grow up. Look, I was there at the original. I remember Steve Simpson. I remember the predecessors and stuff. And it was like, it was a good office, but like you say, but you know, you got to move with the times. Right. See, I remember that interview because you said, you said, hey, I appreciate that question, but a better question would have been, had you asked me, why did people want me to run? See, I remember that interview. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, we actually had Dave Gaddis on episode 74. Uh, okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. We've had many a, of the people, you know, cute, Joe, man. Yeah. Joe Pierce we had on what a great story he had, you know, yeah. uh, over in Afghanistan, uh-huh. hey, but, but let's talk about that though, too. So, cause I want to get in because a lot of the issues you're dealing with now are, 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 are part of the heart and soul of what we talk about here, but what you, so uh, by the time you became the public affairs officer, you had those years and how much of your time was spent overseas? Would you say 40%, 50%? 
I would say because I only did probably thirty percent, probably about okay. 30%. Yeah, yeah, but, but that but, still but gives you a good worldview of what's going on. And I think that's probably why I was selected for the job because of that. I think they just wanted to have somebody up there that that had that kind of diversity of experience. I think it, I think it's helpful there. So it was helpful to me to learn to learn that job. Uh, it, very difficult, and, and, and you know, you're really an extension of the administrator uh, in that particular case. So it, one of the things I think people. Uh, have to realize when it comes to media relations is that you really are uh, kind of the voice uh, and the eyes and the ears of of the the top official there. So you got to kind of get in sync with with where their mindset is, how they would like to answer questions. Because ultimately, what I certainly find here in in Loudoun County is <clears throat> no matter who answers a question on my behalf, and I do a lot myself, but no matter who answers a question on my behalf, no matter what happens here, I'm the guy who's responsible for it. I'm the one that's mm-hmm. going to be. Uh, either going to be attacked or going to get the going to get the praise or the accolades for the good things that we do or get attacked for anything that might that might go south so it's always me so you have to make sure that that you have a good understanding uh the one thing about media relations is is that you have a like the office for me is it's right next to me i mean because because everything has happened so fast and furious that you've got to you've got to be able to respond very quickly uh, to to things that are happening, and you got to put out fires or or uh, or get information out. It's 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 a really really important job. Well, let let oh yeah, let's roll into Loudoun County now. So you thought about it. Who planted this bug in your your head to go? Hey, Mike, you spent all this time being a federal agent now. Let's bring you back to your roots, back when you were a real cop, back when you were heading so, Howard County. So when I um, when I was in California, um, I got a, a job offer from Booz Allen. Uh, so as you know, Booz Allen's a uh, you know a pretty good strategic uh, firm there, and uh, in they they actually came in and and we're going to pay pretty much what I was already making, uh, you know, as a, as a DA agent out there in California. So. Yeah, I talked to a financial advisor and, you know, you look in retirement, you're looking, well, it's like, okay, this is a pretty good offer. It's just too good an offer to turn down. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.